And we'll be starting in verse 1. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people before rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then we're going to be flipping over to John chapter 4 as well. And we're going to be starting in verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Unless you people see signs and wonders, Jesus told him, you will never believe. The royal official said, Sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that his boy was living. When he inquired as to the time, when his son got better, they said to him, Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. So he and his whole household believed. This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Well, great to see you. Um, just a couple of things before we start, or maybe just one thing. The first thing to say, just uh, I think it was clear, but just to make it clear, the night on racism, uh, we're against it. Right? So racism's bad. It's not. There's no question of that. Um, and, and just to make that, everyone's got that, All right? Okay. It's not. We're going to get together and work out what to think about it. Um, it's rather that. Um, uh, just tonight, I wanted to walk there, and I can't. Anyway, um, it uh, the the night we've been running these hot topics for 24 years, and uh, each year we do a bunch of different ones. And I'm gonna, this one on racism is the most important night you'll ever go to. I know some of you are about to get married. More important than that, all right? This night on racism is deeply important. I tell you why. Uh, what we'll be looking at together is uh, a set of movements that are happening 
um, that are actually part of the air people breathe. And uh, if you've been through the education system in the last uh, 10 years, then it will be part of your kind of life that you've embraced and engaged and thought about this stuff. So this is really important. For people over 45, it's really important for a different reason. There's all kinds of blind spots that people over 45 have, but people under 45, under 35, there's a significantly important thing for you. So I just want to urge you to see if you can find your way to be part of that, to consider these things, because uh, without thinking this clearly through, um, uh, the culture that we're in will move us out of the Christian faith. So it is deeply important to get involved. If you're 45, you don't need to come. It's sort of between ages, you're okay, but uh, otherwise uh, get along. All right, let me pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do uh, pray uh, for your blessing tonight. Uh, ask, please, that you might help me speak clearly, speak what's true. Uh, help us, please, listen well. And we do ask for the work of your Spirit amongst us tonight, that he might move in our hearts and lives and transform and change us by the words that you have given us in the Scriptures. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. As was mentioned too, there'll be a uh, time for questions afterwards, so uh, see what this stirs up. Some years ago, a friend uh, of mine, a man I'm going to call John, I've changed a couple of the details of this story just to protect people, but uh, he was at a church, he was a pastor in, in a team uh, of, a pastor. it was a fairly large church, he was one of the pastors there, and a guest preacher was in action that day at church, and at the end of the sermon, this man um, invited, sometime during the ministries that he was doing, he invited people to come down the front who wanted healing. And one particular person came down in a wheelchair, a young man, and uh, this preacher laid hands on him and said, uh, get up and walk, and the man did, got up out of his wheelchair chair and walked, healed. The congregation were amazed, the man was thrilled. Uh, my friend John tells me it was legit. He said, I've been in that church for a long time uh, and uh, there's lots of smoke and mirrors that went on with all the miracles that were claimed and he said I, I saw a lot of stuff that claimed to be but certainly wasn't and he said in all the years I was here this was the one this wasn't a young man who walked into the church and looked tired and so the ushers gave him a wheelchair just to sit on uh, so that when the moment came he could get up and it all looked fantastic it wasn't that episode he said uh, this man was really paralysed and he really got up and walked um, and it was quite an astonishing thing. Now, what do you do with that? What, what, what do you make of that episode that I've just drawn your attention to? Um, over the years, there's been different reactions to that kind of thing in church life. There have been seasons uh, for Christians and churches and the wider Christian community where people have wanted more and more of that kind of thing have felt like churches weren't really spiritual churches in touch with the divine unless they had these kinds of miracles happening week in, week out. There was something deficient about the church. It wasn't really in touch. It wasn't really a spirit church. It didn't have the power that it ought to have. And so churches pursued these kinds of things. And, and some uh, leaders have said in the past, some few years ago now, that the key to winning the Western world is an evangelistic ministry that exercises these kinds of miraculous powers. And in fact, it was called power evangelism uh, as opposed to just ordinary evangelism. So ordinary evangelism is where you just preach the gospel 
Uh, but power evangelism was when you preach the gospel and add miracles to it. And that's the, the evangelism that will win the world, the other one won't. So that's one side of things where there's been a hankering, a desire for more, a desire to see churches in Christian life, to see more miracles happen. But on the other side, there's been Christians, churchgoers, who have always been totally dismissive of the idea of miracles. They've been dismissive not only of the need uh, or desire to have the miraculous in their lives and churches, but they've suggested even that all the accounts of the Bible that talk about miracles are really just fables. They're metaphors. They're not literally a miracle that's being reported there. So on one hand, you have people who kind of want more, chase more. On the other hand, dismiss it, even dismiss it in the Bible. Where do you sit? How do you think about miracles? Do you, do you find yourself thinking, um, yeah, I, I don't think they can happen. Science rules the world. Laws of science, it's not possible, it must be made up. Is that where you're at? Or are you the kind of person going, I wouldn't mind a bit more of a miracle in my life. I mean, how can I get that happening? Um, it's a problem for me that churches don't... S- where do you, or do you sit somewhere in between all of that? They're a little uncertain about it all. Now, I start here in this kind of discussion around miracles because the passage that we've just had read, that we'll be looking at together is really just about a miracle. Uh, John chapter 4 is the report uh, of a miracle that happened in Jesus' ministry um, concerning the son of a royal official. Uh, And uh, it's a very significant miracle, but it's pretty much all that this part of the Bible talks about is this miracle. And so what do we make of it? What do we make of miracles? What's this part of the Bible about? And so I want us to think about miracles because the Bible is talking about miracles. But I want us to do a little bit more than that because of two things, a statement Jesus makes and a statement John, the author, makes. Have a look at, get your Bible, turn up to John chapter 4. Look at the statement that Jesus makes first. Verse 48. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. What does that mean? Unless you people see signs and wonders, miracles, you'll never believe. What's he saying? I want us to dig into that and try and make sense of what Jesus is talking about there. But there's another statement, a statement that John the author makes back in verse 43, 44, 45. Have a look back there. After the two days he left for Galilee. Now Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, his own country, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, hang on. Didn't John just tell us that Jesus said, in Galilee, he'll have no honour? And then he goes on to say, when he went to Galilee, they welcomed him. What? Don't you see that? Doesn't that seem odd? Well, it is odd. And it's more odd because there's a word that the English translations don't translate for us that's in the Greek, the original language, a word that starts verse 45, and it's the word therefore. It's interesting the translators haven't included it in, but this, this is how it actually reads. Verse 44, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honour in his own country, where he grew up in Galilee. Therefore, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Does that sound odd to you? It should, 
Because it is. Until we make sense of what is happening with the miracles and the people and their response to it. Two statements that are puzzling. Jesus says, unless you people have signs and wonders, you won't believe. John says, no honour for Jesus in Galilee, but when he went to Galilee, they welcomed him. I want to dig into those things together. And as always, as we do that, <coughs> the Bible will open us up. It'll do surgery on us. And it really is quite wonderful. Let's just start, though, with the fact of the miracle. Let's go through that and get this in place. Verse 43. Now, I've got a map that'll come up here too. After two days, Jesus left for Galilee. Now, he's been down in Samaria, see so the dot there, halfway between Jerusalem and Cana. Now, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, Galilee is that northern region where Jesus grew up. He wasn't born there, but he grew up there. That's where he lived. Uh, and it's kind of like the northern, it's the Hicksville of Israel, all right? It's the kind of uh, where kind of uh, loser kind of country bumpkins live. As wonderful as country people are. Jesus was one of them, so there we are. But he visits, he, he goes up to Galilee. Uh, verse 44, Jesus himself had pointed out a prophet has no honour in his own country, in Galilee, but actually more, more fully the whole of Israel. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They'd seen all that he'd done in Jerusalem at the Passover festival because they'd also been there. Once more, he visited Canaan. See that little uh, dot there with the name? He visited Cana in Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. That's a reminder that chapter 2, a couple of chapters earlier, Jesus did his first miracle at the wedding in Cana of Galilee and uh, the, the wedding party ran out of wine and they came to Jesus and Jesus got a whole bunch of big jars of ceremonial water and turned them into wine and the party went on. Uh, Jesus wasn't against a party. He provided the lubrication for it. Um, but not, be careful what you do with alcohol. It's important to be wise and mature. But it's a miracle that Jesus performs in John chapter 2. Now, while come back to chapter 4. While Jesus is there in Cana of Galilee, a certain, verse 46, a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum uh, came to him. Now, Capernaum, you can see at the top of the Sea of Galilee. So it's some distance between those two places. Remember, you're talking about people walking between areas. Verse 47, that we can take the map off now. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. Now just notice this, by the way, actually, that what you have is a royal official, a ruler, comes to Jesus and he begs Jesus. In the ancient world, Jesus stood out. And it's... Uh, Jesus then performs the miracle, verse 50. Go, Jesus replied, your son will live. The man wanted Jesus to come with him to Capernaum and heal his son, but Jesus says, no, you just go back. Your son will be well. Well, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. While he was still on the way, walking back to Capernaum, the servants met him with the news that the boy was living. When he inquired as to the time when this son had got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realised that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he realised this is no coincidence. This is the power and work of Jesus, who wasn't even there, who just spoke a word. And so he and his household believed. 
This was the second sign Jesus performed after coming from Judea to Galilee. Now, there's the miracle. And notice just this first thing, that Jesus did miracles. So that crowd of people that want to say, you know, it's just all myth and fairy tale, Jesus did miracles. And the author John makes sure that we see that the miracles Jesus did weren't just fables. He goes to great lengths to show us that these things aren't just a coincidence. They're actually literally what happens. The claims that Jesus, the claims John is making about Jesus are extravagant, extraordinary, but he gives us details of the events. You can't strip out from the accounts of the New Testament out of the life of Jesus the miracles that he did and have much left. That Jesus did miracles is integral to the presentation of the first witnesses. You come into chapter 5, chase it up later. Um, Jesus is back in Jerusalem and he heals the paralysed man. In chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 people in the wilderness with a small uh, meal. He walks on water at the end of that chapter on the Sea of Galilee. Chapter 9, he heals a man born blind. He gives him his sight back again and so on and so on. And then, of course, his own resurrection. Dead, three days dead, but then back to life again, never to die again. Resurrected, the greatest of all miracles. And notice this, John reports all of these things, not as legend, not as myth, but as tied to actual locations, real people, with their investigation and suspicion and cynicism around it all. This is not concocted. John goes to great lengths to show that this is astonishing. People found it hard to believe because we weren't used to this happening. This didn't happen all the time. And this didn't happen in a galaxy far, far away. It happened in Israel, in Cana, in Capernaum, in Samaria. These happened in particular places. And the book ends, John's Gospel ends, with John saying, Jesus performed many other signs, did many other things. But he wrote these, John, I've written these down that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. John goes to great lengths to present the truth of these things. And the one who writes this book, John himself, demonstrates his own commitment to the truth. Come with me to a letter that he wrote later in the New Testament, 1 John, all the way towards the end of the New Testament. Again, it's worth chasing this up. So the author of John's Gospel lived to a very old age and wrote numbers of other letters and so on to various people and churches. And uh, in 1 John, the first letter that we have of his, look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, and notice this, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. He says it again, verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. This is a man going to great lengths to tell you that I'm not making this up. This happened in real space, real time. I was there, I touched, I saw, I heard, 
I looked at. Um, this author, too, who makes all of these claims, lived to a very old age. And, and get this, you may not be aware, but his brother, James, was also a follower of Jesus in these early years. And he was killed by the ruler of the time because of his commitment to Jesus. John the Apostle saw his brother killed because of testifying to the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be, who did these things. He saw almost, well, he saw all his other friends, the apostles, all killed for their testimony to these things. He himself ends up in prison because of his testimony to these things. Now, can you imagine this? Can you imagine him seeing his brother being killed by Herod the ruler and him knowing it's all a fable, it's a legend, it's a lie and keeping quiet? Him knowing that his brother's dying for a lie and not say something? He, he knew it had to happen because it's true. And he himself, towards the end of his life, sat down to write his eyewitness account of the truth of these things. Friends, this is deeply compelling. If, if you're here tonight and you're drifting as a Christian, you know, people go through ups and downs. And you might be here and you kind of, life is kind of taken over. You've got, you're struggling with your emotions and all kinds of things happening at home. Your uh, work is stressful and you're kind of worried about it and you drift, you're finding yourself drifting. Can I just urge you to calibrate again? Just to take this time again to notice the substance of these accounts. If you're sceptical, if you're sitting here and you're kind of going, I don't believe all this stuff. Can I encourage you to look at the evidence? It is powerfully compelling. The shape of the reporting, who did the reporting, the lives that they lived, all of these things have the ring of authenticity. It's powerful. Come along to life. The series we run, if you've not been yet, come along and investigate. It's very powerful. And it needs to be powerful because of the implications. If this happened the way John said it happened, if Jesus did these things, then we are dealing with something unique and life-changing. There is nothing like it in human history, what's being claimed here, that God has visited the planet. He has become man and walked amongst us. That is a radical message. If the Christian claim is true, then in the person of Jesus, you can meet God. This is why the miraculous in the life of Jesus isn't out of place. It's not impossible. Do you know the kind of world of science says that these things aren't possible? But that's because there's a view of science around that imagines the laws of science rule the universe. No, no, no. They just describe the patterns we see in the universe. If there is a God who rules the universe and he becomes man amongst us, of course he'll walk on water. Of course you'll change water into wine. Of course you'll heal the sick. Do you know, if you are a very strong sceptic around the science issue, um, the key piece to reflect on is the place of God. If there is a God who stands outside and over all things, then miracles are not irrational. They are logically possible. The question to wrestle with is the evidence sufficient to indicate that they did happen. And what I'm offering is the evidence is overwhelmingly wonderful. 
Now, all of this is to say that that kind of mindset that emerges every now and then amongst church people that these things are myth and fairy tale just does not cut it. Miracles are part and parcel of the message of Jesus. But come with me now to notice the way Jesus thought about his miracles. Do you remember I, made, I said there's two statements that we want to reflect on? Uh, the statement Jesus makes and the statement John makes about Jesus. Let's look firstly at the statement Jesus makes. Have a look there at verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus then said these words, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. Now what is that? Jesus is voicing a problem. He's voicing a problem with these people. Now you might think to yourself, well, isn't, it, isn't he just saying, um, you guys need signs and wonders to believe, so I better do some signs and wonders. Now the context won't let you run with that. Because remember in verse 44, Jesus is the one who said, a prophet has no honour in his own country, in Galilee, in the Jerusalem world, in the uh, Israelite world. He has no honour. And so when he says you people won't believe unless you have signs and wonders, he's actually speaking about a problem that's happening in their hearts. That they need signs and wonders to believe. It's a problem that they're like that. There's something wrong with them needing miracles to believe. It wasn't the case for the Samaritans. Earlier in chapter 4, they simply heard the word and believed. But now we're brought to the people of God, Israel, and Jesus says, you guys don't get it. Now, this is part of a larger set of teaching recorded by John through the Gospel. Uh, and so run with me through this. Come back to chapter 2 and you'll see it play out. Come back to chapter 2 where Jesus does that miracle of changing water into wine. And uh, verse uh, 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of his signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So notice that Jesus performs a miracle and his disciples believe in him. It sounds good, right? We'll come across to 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. They saw a bunch of miracles that Jesus was doing in Jerusalem and they believed as well. That sounds good, yeah? Until you get to verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. What's going on? Jesus did miracles, and there were a bunch of people who believed in him because of the miracles, and he goes, I don't trust you. Because the way you're responding based on miracles shows there's something insubstantial or inadequate or immature about your response to me. And this plays out in chapter 6. Come with me to chapter 6. In chapter 6, uh, Jesus uh, starts this section, verse 26... With these words, very truly I tell you, verse 26, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Now this, this happens just after Jesus has fed 5,000 people. 
miraculously. And he's saying, you're chasing me, not because you saw the sign, I'll explain what that means in a moment, not because you saw the sign, but because you got a feed. These are people who are believing in him based on these kinds of miracles. Jesus is again identifying a problem. And through chapter 6, he begins to lay down some very hard teaching. Uh, he begins to talk about who he is, uh, how he's come from heaven. He's exclusively the way to know God. Uh, he's the centre to life. You need to eat him to find life. He starts to say extraordinary things about the centrality of who he is and so on. In verse 41 of chapter 6, look what happens. At this, the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say he came down from heaven? They're not captivated by him at all. In fact, Jesus pushes this teaching even further. Um, and uh, he says his life's the only way, the only life that gives life. In verse 52, the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus pushes it even harder. And verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is hard teaching, who can accept it? Just notice this. Jesus doesn't step down from having done his ministry amongst the crowd with groups of people saying, oh, Jesus, you're pushing them too hard. He doesn't go, well, I don't want to lose anyone. He goes, let me push harder. Because he wants to get right to the heart of what's happening for people. But then this, verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Many of his disciples walked away. The people who believed in him because of his miracles, the people he wouldn't entrust himself to because he knows what's in the heart of man. He realises their faith is insubstantial. He realises, verse 26, that they've come to him because he's feeding them. He's giving them what they want. They loved him the miracle worker who made their life better. But they didn't want the teaching. They didn't want the substance of who he claimed to be and what that means in their life. They didn't want that. People believed in him because of the miracles and Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew what was insubstantial about their faith. Now, there is more to be said about miracles. There's a positive side. We'll get there in a moment. But hear this part at least. Don't miss this. Christianity, based on signs and wonders and miracles, is a very unhealthy Christianity. It's a very insubstantial Christianity, not one that you ought to entrust yourself to. And a reliance on the miraculous personally or in a ministry fails to see what the miracles are actually doing, what they're about how they function. Let me show you this play out in chapter 11. One more piece. Come with me to chapter 11. Jesus raises a dead man, Lazarus, four days in the grave, brings him back to life again, resuscitates him. Now John reports all of this happening and then look there at verse 47. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked, here is this man performing many signs. They didn't doubt the signs. Lazarus was standing there. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. 
Do you see that? They saw the miracle, they saw the sign, but they didn't believe in him and they didn't want others to believe in him. Now, that's an important thing to... Do you see, friends, it's possible to experience a genuine miracle and not believe. Well, you might believe the miracle and the power of the one who did it, but not believe in a way that actually is meant to happen. What's the kind of belief that's meant to happen? (laughs) The kind of belief that's meant to happen is a conviction about who Jesus is. That he is Lord and God, Saviour. That he is not just the Lord of heaven and earth, but my Lord. The one I'm to bow the knee to. You see, the Pharisees were happy to acknowledge that he did signs and wonders and miracles. But they wouldn't go the next step of bowing the knee to him. Because that's a heart issue, not a head issue. That's a problem of rebelliousness. And a miracle doesn't change that. See, it's a warning for us. It's a warning for us who have all been raised in an education system that's kind of dismisses supernatural, that only sees science as the answer to everything. Uh, being raised in that kind of world, we become jaded Westerners where we hanker for something spectacular. We believe in God, we believe in the Christian faith and we just want to see a bit of evidence every now and then that it's real. Just a miracle. And then I'd believe. But two things come out of all of this. We need to learn to embrace Jesus' warnings about these things and be cautious about people who do believe in Jesus because of miracles. We need to be cautious there. And we need to let go of the notion that if people could just see a miracle, they'd believe. You know, if Jesus just did something miraculous in my life, then I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. If your heart is not disposed to submit and bow before God as he presents himself in his word, if someone rises from the dead, you won't believe. Now, Jesus teaches that exact thing in Luke chapter 16. Chase it up. This is a lesson from uh, 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 Reeves. What is it? Keanu Reeves, isn't it? How do you say his first name? (laughs) That man. And Sandra Bullock. Do you know Sandra Bullock? No. It's from 1994. Who was alive in 1994? Yeah, there you go. There's a movie called Speed. And if you've not seen it, go and grab it. Uh, it's a great fun movie. It's about a bus uh, that has a bomb fixed to it and if it goes below a certain speed, the, bomb, the bus full of people blows up. And so uh, Keanu Reeves and his girl Sandra Bullock try and rescue the bus. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to ruin the whole movie. I'm going to tell They all survive, all right? Everyone make... Oops, sorry about that. And, and Reeves and Sandra Bullock get together romantically at the end of it, Okay. Sorry about that as well. Uh, but you could see it coming, okay? And um, when they get together, they're about to kiss at the very end as this kind of great romantic moment. And she says to him, uh, you do know that relationships formed in highly emotional context rarely last. That is hugely wise. <laughs> that is exactly right. Now, you know it's true, actually, because when the second movie came out, they weren't together. Another spoiler alert for you, bro. But um, it doesn't last. But uh, 
But here's the deal. All of this is saying relationships with Jesus formed in highly miraculous signs and wonders experiences are in unstable, don't have sufficient depth. Jesus wouldn't entrust himself to them. You know, my friend I mentioned at the, early, uh, at the beginning, uh, John, uh, one of the pastors of a church where they, they, every week they would seek to experience miracles because for them it was actually about, um, it, you know, if they didn't have a miracle one week, there was a sense in which we've lost the work of God amongst us. So there was a real need to have it week in, week out to keep the sense of momentum that we're in touch with God. And so they chased it week in, week out. He said he was there for years and lots of claims about miracles, never saw one real one except for that man who got out of the wheelchair. He said, Andrew, that was, the, that was legitimate. But here's the deal. Once the man was healed, he left his wife and took up with another woman. And John was wise enough to see that that pursuit of miracles and a faith based on it did not produce mature Christian life. And that's what John is teaching us, do you see? Be cautious about people who believe because they've experienced miracles. And let go of the notion that if only people could see a miracle, then surely they'd believe. You know, I think all of this explains a very important feature of John's record of Jesus' life and ministry. You, you, won't, you, you may not have noticed this, but John never uses the word miracle. When he talk, the other gospel writers use a word that is translated as miracle legitimately. John's gospel, John never uses the word miracle. Now, if you've got an older NIV, the 1984 NIV, you'll go, well, yes, he does. He calls it a miraculous sign. No, no, the word miraculous isn't in the original. John just says sign and the later NIV gets it right. Except in one place, John 7, where it uses the word miracle, where it ought to use the word work. John never uses the word miracle. He just says Jesus did signs and works. Now, why? Because I think, well, many people think, John is particularly concerned to point out that Jesus' miracles are not just exhibiting him as a powerful wonder worker. They're signs pointing to who he is as the fulfilment of Old Testament hopes. That's what it's all about. So John deliberately says, this is the second sign. Because what he's wanting to do is to say, there's a whole expectation in the Old Testament that one day God would send his king back to the world who would come and open the eyes of the blind who would let the cause the lame to walk uh, who would who would raise the dead who would um, uh, give voice to the dumb who, who would set things right and this promise and expectation in the old testament um, sits there waits there jesus comes and he walks around doing miracles not just power displays but lame walk the blind see that the deaf hear. Because it's saying, Jesus is saying, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And John says, Jesus did signs to point to who he is, the king that we've been waiting for, the Isaiah 9 man, the Isaiah 11, the Isaiah 61, the Isaiah 53 man, the one who comes as powerful, mighty God. 
everlasting father, prince of peace. Even the feeding of the 5,000 wasn't just a power display, it was a sign. And see, here's how chapter 6, I don't know if you remember that verse, but here's how it works. Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 was a sign that he is the new Moses. It was Moses in the Old Testament who fed the people of Israel in the wilderness. And Jesus comes along and takes the people into the wilderness and feeds them. And he says to them, you came to me, uh, you, you looked for me, because not because you saw the sign, but because you had your feed. You, you came to me not, re, not because you realised who I am, but because I gave you food to eat. Do you see? And the resurrection, of course, is not just a display of power. It's that he is the one who conquers death. He is the eternal king who will rule forever because he'll never die. These things are significant signs. Now, this takes a real recalibration for us because we're materialists at heart. For us, matter, that's all there is. That's our instinct. And we live in this perpetual uncertainty about the spiritual realm and possibly constantly needing proof that it's real. And if I could just have a miracle or a number of miracles, I'd believe more. I'd be more... We're prone to chase after it. Take care. Take care. But there's a deeper and more immediate application to our context, which is the other statement that I said we needed to look at. This one much more briefly. Come to John 4 again and we'll put this together. Do you remember I pointed out in John 4 verse 44 that Jesus himself had said that a prophet is with no honour in his own country? And therefore, when he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. And the oddity there, how come no honour, and yet therefore when he came, he was welcomed. What's going on there? Um, well, um, <coughs> they didn't honour him, but they welcomed him. You've got all the pieces now to put into place. What's going on? They didn't honour him, but they welcomed him. What's happening? Why do you think they welcomed him? Because he fed them. He healed them. They didn't honour him because they weren't sold on the idea that he is the Messiah, the King, our King, the Lord that we should submit to. But they welcomed him. You see, you don't believe because you saw the sign but because you had your fill. They didn't follow Jesus because they saw that he is truly the Lord of heaven and earth. They followed Jesus because he gave them things. You know, I think this is the biggest issue for us tonight. It's why it matters to consider these things. You know, it might be the case that Jesus does come to you in some miraculous way. He does, he answers a prayer in the most astonishing, miraculous way. You might be sick and be healed. We've had that happen in church. We've had people healed over the years. Miraculous, astonishing, cured of cancer, these kinds of things. You might have God come in that way into your life, meeting your immediate need. He's compassionate and gracious and answers our prayers like that sometimes. But 
That experience of the miracle will count for nothing unless you respond more deeply to the truth of who he shows himself to be, your Lord, your King, your ruler. You see, that was the problem in the ancient world. The miracles counted as signs and if you saw in the miracle that what they were signifying is that Jesus is who he says he is and so through the sign came to put your faith in Jesus as your Lord, the miracles worked well. There is a positive power to them as they point us to who he is, not as a wonder worker but as the Saviour and King and Lord. Here it is, the Christian faith will make your life better. If you become a Christian, your life will be better in deep and profound ways. You'll come into the light, you'll see truth finally, your life will make sense, you'll have meaning and hope and purpose and you'll actually have the power of God in your life to get your act together so that you'll come to be healthier, you'll actually get a job, all kinds of things will work better in your life because you know Jesus. But coming to Jesus will make your life harder. It'll also make your life much harder because he brings hard teaching about who he is and the centrality of who he is, how exclusive his claims are, that don't fit with prevailing cultural views. And you'll find yourself confronted with whether I believe Jesus or soften what Jesus says to fit in with what I'd like to think is the case. It's going to be hard if you're really going to embrace Jesus as your Lord because you can't choose which bits you like. It'll be hard because it'll push against your sinful nature. What you want to do in your life and what he calls you to will have a conflict, a conflict of the spirit in your life and a conflict of the sinful nature in your life. It's harder to be a Christian than not a Christian. The first five to seven years of my Christian journey, I became a Christian uh, as a young adult. I was not raised in a Christian home. And when I became a Christian, I was embedded in all kinds of lifestyle and culture that I had to break free from. And I found the first five to seven years of my Christian life torturous. It was just such a constant uh, battle against what I wanted, what I enjoyed, what my friends wanted. I found my church friends were boring. I know it's weird. And I found my non-Christian friends exciting. I, until I met you guys. My church friends are really awesome now, right? But do you know, it was, it was tough for those. It made life harder. And here's the... See, uh, you know... I have a role as a pastor in this church. So do others. We have a number of people who work amongst us as pastoral leaders, men and women, seeking for your spiritual good. And we are deeply concerned that we don't lose any of you. That you don't fall away. That you deepen in your response to Jesus. So that it becomes less and less about you and your needs... And more and more about Jesus and his glory. That you be more and more captured by the depth and truth of who he is. So that you'll follow him through thick and thin. Because the pathway to heaven is through many hardships, says the Apostle Paul. The key for us is to bow the knee to Jesus, his word, his way, wherever it takes you. Whatever it means for your friends and your family and your work. Now test yourselves tonight. Are you in the faith? Who is Jesus to you? 
Is he just an interest? Is he a way to connect with other friends? Is he someone your parents believe in but you're just going along with? Who is Jesus to you? Is he just for you a ticket to heaven, a hope for a better life now? Hopefully he'll make things go well for me now. Is that who Jesus is for you? Or have you come to see him for who he is, the Lord of heaven and earth? The king, your king, your ruler, the one you're made to serve and centre your life upon. Have you come to see who he is? Now, the evidence that you see that in your life will be that you seek to obey him, even when it's swimming against the tide. That you repent when you fail, because we do fail, we sin. That there'll be a pattern of repentance and turning around to keep following Jesus because he's my Lord. Is that the pattern of your life? Repentance and faith, repentance and faith. Now, the things we're talking about tonight, as you can see, are very big things. They touch on deep cultural issues. They touch on personal issues. They touch on the Bible and how it thinks about these things. So we're going to pause and we're going to see if there's any... I've got a couple of things to finish with, but let's just see if there's any questions you want to ask. Is there anything that's puzzling you or puzzling the person sitting next to you? Anything you want to ask? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you've got a few things that the New Testament says. So Jesus says, unless you die to self, take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. So unless you die to self. Um, he, he, uh, Paul says that uh, he died for us that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. So there's a very, there's a very deep core to the Christian response to Jesus, which says, um, I was made for him, to glorify him, to live for him and pursue his interests and his ambitions and I'm going to die to mine to pursue his. That's a deep and profound core to the instinct of the Christian. But the beautiful thing is that Jesus says, if you do that, you'll find life. You'll find a life that you didn't realise you were looking for even. So the needs that you have you'll realise over time that the things I thought were needs were just wants and the things that really are needs, he'll satisfy. So it all comes together in a wonderful, profound way. But some of my needs, I won't ultimately have fulfilled until heaven. So some of you will be single and want to be married and there'll be a need that you'll feel there of a deep, intimate relationship that you won't get until heaven. And that'll be a grief and a pain for you. But you trust your Lord Jesus, who's got it all waiting for you. 
who'll work all things together for good in the midst of it. Some of you will want to have a child one day and you won't be able to have that child. And the book of Ecclesiastes says there's three, four things that never say enough and one of them is the barren womb. It's a deep pain for a woman who wants to have a child to not be able to have one. There's some needs and wants. that. But as you die to self and look to Jesus, trusting him, he'll take you through all of that and bring you to home, into heaven, where everything will be fulfilled. Yeah. Anything else? Look, I think there's a hand. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Uh, it's good. Good question and well put. Yeah, how do you how do you respond to stories of miracles in other places, other churches, and so on and so forth? How do you do that without being dismissive? Or what was your other words? Judgy or dismissive? Um, <laughs> that's right. Don't be judgy or dismissive. That's how you respond. Um, and because here's the thing. God can do miracles. And there's lots of places and lots of churches that see the hand of God work like that because they pray for it. And one of our problems may be that we're prayerless. You don't have because you don't ask. And so the Lord might be working in some other people's lives in wonderful ways like that. Um, so don't dismiss it out of hand that it's possible. Don't be judgmental about where they're at. But don't be naive either. Don't be gullible and imagine that's the healthier Christian life, to have lots of miracles happening. No, read your Bible, see how Jesus teaches about... It's, come to John, the end of John's Gospel. Come right to the end of John's Gospel. Um, uh, it's uh, the incident with Thomas. Look at verse 29, chapter 20, verse 29. Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. Just think with me for a moment. Which is the more blessed Christian experience? To have been there and seen it all with your own eyes? Or to be here and hear about it through the Bible? Which is the more blessed? Well, Jesus tells you, you're more blessed than Thomas. Because he had to see it to believe it. But you get to hear it in the word of God and come to faith through that. That's the more blessed Christian experience. Did you keep recalibrating the way you think about this stuff? So I hear of a story of the miracle and I, and, and I, I, I hear, yeah, sure, could well be. But when I hear the person say, um, this is the key to, this has been the thing that's made me mature and grow as a Christian. I go, whoa, you're settling for second best. It might help you, but there's a better help that God has for you. It's the Word of God. Don't settle for second best. Do you see how you engage like that? Right? Anything else? All right, let me, let me. Yeah, so what, what do we make of the evidences for the resurrection? 
There's two holes that you can fall into, two traps. One is to um, focus entirely on evidentialists, apologetics, you know, all the different historical evidences and, you know, the, there's a way of relying on that um, that turns you into a pseudo-scientist who's reliant on the truth through the vehicle of the evidences. There's another trap to fall into, um, which is that you think there's no need to have evidences at all, I just, I just believe, and that's a more wonderful thing. The, it's called fideism, that position there. In between that is this position where the Bible cares about evidences because it cares about the truth, historical evidences of matter. But it doesn't ground our faith in the evidences, it grounds them in the Word of God when God speaks to us in the Scriptures. But that Word is, I'm nurtured to trust that Word because of the support that I gain from seeing the evidences that are part of it. But I want to see the evidences to nurture me in believing the word of my Father who speaks to me. So God's spoken to me in his word. I trust him. I don't dismiss the evidence. That's a help to bring me into seeing the word of God for what it is. But I don't, I don't live my life on it. I trust the word. <laughs> there's, a, there's a middle piece there that's the more profound place to be. Yep. Let me finish for us. Let me finish by saying finally... Um, Jesus did die and rise again for you. It's real. There's a beautiful moment in John 6 where everyone's deserting Jesus and Jesus says to his disciples, are you guys going to desert me? And they say, where else can we go? Who else has got the words of eternal life? It's almost like they're going... We're only clinging by our fingernails, but there's nowhere else to go. If you're not the one, we're lost. That was the first seven years of my Christian life. It was, um, I'm, I'm just holding on. But I can't see there's anywhere else to go except Jesus, who has died and been raised again to new life. And he will be with me in all my ups and downs. And take me with him to be in a new creation. Trust him. It's real. Cling to him through the ups and downs. Because nowhere else can you find the words of eternal life. Except in the Lord Jesus. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the powerful word that you have given us. Um, a word that testifies to the truth of these events and happenings. Please help us trust them. Please work by your spirit in our lives to, to, to see the truth, the reality of these things, to hear your voice, our Father speaking to us, that we might trust you always in the thick and thin of life. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.